Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. As always, I'm there for this month's Recording of Atoms with our Senior Editor, Rachel Egbeko. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nick. It's an interesting month, I think. Um, uh, Lots of themes. And why don't we start with one of the ones that really jumps out? There's this undercurrent that um, if there's a realisation of anything being taken for granted, freedoms being taken for granted, would be in this issue. So there are several papers in this issue which deal with freedom in its broadest sense. One could argue, of course, that freedom and health are closely related. In fact, I think there's a very compelling case for that. Freedom to change, freedom to develop, to be, to walk, to talk, to move, to travel. Anyway, on that theme um, and on that extrapolated subject, we'll be discussing four papers with this in mind. I think it's worth saying um, that we both just got back from trips abroad and we're lucky enough to carry the right passports, drop a few items in our bags and cross borders. And to me, it's ever more apparent how lucky some of us are. That diversion aside, let's get to the papers. So I totally agree, Nick, um, about some of us being rather lucky. Um, And we'll be talking about four papers uh, in this Atoms uh, podcast. Uh, The two of them uh, relate to asylum-seeking children. Um, You can say that freedom is very pertinent there. The first one we'll discuss is by Dr Nuria Sanchez-Clemente and her colleagues from London and Gateshead in the UK. They report their findings in the review paper Beyond Arrival, Safeguarding Unaccompanied Asylum-Seeking Children in the UK. The authors set out to describe the reasons young people are forced to flee their countries, how they make their journey and the risks and dangers they face along the way. They examined safety and victimisation risks faced by children and young people after arrival in the UK, but also which mechanisms and processes exist to safeguard these individuals. And they examined the data available of outcomes of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. It's a hard read, Nick. It's a hard read. I think uh, the overwhelming feeling was one of sadness, in, and probably as as uh, as you had too. But anyway, um, let me develop that a bit more. So if we start with the definition. So an unaccompanied asylum-seeking child, or USAC, in the Um, in the language generally used, is defined as an individual who's under 18, who's applying for asylum in his or her own right, separated from both parents and not being cared for by an adult who by law or custom has responsibility to do so. So these are vulnerable children right from the outset, whatever happens next. And there are several thousands of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children living in the UK as we speak, despite the government's efforts in hostile immigration policies, there's been no decline in the number of claims. Most of the children are male, most are between 16 and 18, and more likely than not, they'll have had a background of injuries, often multiple infections, and almost invariably mental trauma. Their experiences also often include deprivation of liberty, back to the freedom theme, forced conscription, deprived access of education, And for girls, female genital mutilation um, is a major reason. 
And the journey these children embark on is arduous, not just because of the harsh travelling route without enough to eat and drink, but also due to having to earn their transportation, inverted commas. In the course of doing this, they might well be beaten, trafficked for forced labour and, of course, sexually exploited. That's the journey and their experience even before coming to to UK. Let's take it from there. So on arrival in the UK, um, as I said, that ordeal is not over um, uh, and they still face a high risk of falling prey to exploitation. And the thing is, these outcomes are not inevitable. We know that stable housing provision, for instance, and the supportive living environment are uh, key contributors to good outcome uh, for these children. And, And foster care is thought to provide both these elements to a greater degree than other placements. But we know that children are not necessarily fostered uh, and are housed in hotels or detention centres, and and that holds true uh, going on today. So there are very practical things that we can do for children, making sure that after their journey, um, they they have as good a chance to have a good outcome uh, as can be. So one of the things as paediatricians we might be able to do is have a have a very holistic approach when we see them uh, for their initial health assessment, uh, which is need to be done within twenty days of arrival, and then appropriately identify this child's needs um, as well as the required interventions. So that is sort of our job as physicians or health healthcare workers um, or people um, in social services. But I think it's also important to think about what it is that we might be able to do with our professional voice um, uh, and to advocate for them, uh, address policies uh, to improve the health of this very vulnerable group of uh, of children. That's an area I think that we can do better at, Nick. I couldn't agree more and um and I think we need to remind ourselves of that and um I, I think the journal also has a duty to remind paediatricians and and beyond that this issue hasn't gone away and it's not going to go away unless people are vocal about it. Well anyway, very very much linked to that is our next paper by Dr. Lahira Amarasena and colleagues on behalf of the Australian Refugee Child Health Network and the Population Child Health Research Group in Australia. Their paper is entitled Offshore Detention, Cross-Sectional Analysis of the Health of Children and Young People Seeking Asylum in Australia. And their objective was to describe the health and well-being of children and young people seeking asylum subjected to Australia's immigration policy of indefinite mandatory detention on the island of Nauru. I don't think we've got time to go into the history of inverted commas facilities provided on Nauru, but they go, they went back many years. The chronology is quite sobering to say the least. What the authors do is describe the health status of a cohort of children held there um, in a cross-sectional analysis. And out of the 222 children transferred, the authors were able to describe the health status of 62. And they used a detailed, comprehensive, holistic health assessment, including the adverse child experience and refugee-specific adverse child experience, 
the RACE tools to describe the adversities encountered. The mean age of the group was younger than described in the previous paper, so nine years old, and most had been there for more than five years. So since they were five, in other words, physical and mental health problems were present in almost the entire study sample. Yes, the entire study sample. The authors concluded that the policy of indefinite mandatory detention contributed and or perpetuated the poor health state of these children. And it's hard to conclude anything else. I think there's a very sobering, uh, uncomfortable uh, conclusion to come that governmental policies actually harm in children. And when I was reading these papers, there were, there were, there were two quotes by Hannah Arendt uh, who, who came to mind. I think the first one was, evil thrives on apathy and cannot exist without it. And the other, when evil is allowed to compete with good, evil has an emotional populist appeal that wins out unless good men and women stand as a vanguard against abuse. So I, I take that as a, as a call, really, for all of us uh, who know about uh, the plight of these children. Now, two very different topics. Although, again, with freedom in, uh, in mind, so the, the first paper is by Dr. Robert Wheeler in Southampton in the UK, titled Ventilation as Restraint. Uh, and as, a, as an intensivist, I do um, ventilate children, um, usually uh, because of some intercurrent severe illness or injury or operation that has occurred. Um, but I hadn't seen it as a vehicle of restraint. Robert describes um, a case that was recently heard in the High Court. Um, and, uh, and I'll just briefly summarise what the case was about. There's a chap called William, William 17, six foot tall, big lad. He'd been found to lack capacity to make medical decisions due to his learning disability, autism and ADHD. He also required a kidney transplant, but was not expected to comply with the medical process. So the question that the judge was asked to decide on whether it would be in his best interest to undergo renal transplant with the associate requirements for deep sedation, acetitating, invasive ventilation. It's a fascinating scenario. And there's, um, what struck me most about the paper was the very reasonable approach taken by all, all, all parties and the clear collaborative spirit in which the ultimate decision was made. The bottom line is he was clearly going to die without the treatment. The treatment was, would only be possible without a degree of restraint, not normal, whatever normal means in this situation, standard methods not being sufficient. The way the arguments uh, were presented and evolved were very interesting and, and, and quite moving because that, uh, it was very obvious that at William was at the centre of this and his well-being um, was very much the, the focus of uh, each of the uh, protagonists, if I'm allowed to call them that, in, in, in the decision-making process. Yes, including the judge um, who actually um, visited with William. That's right. I think he saw him at home, if I remember rightly. Anyway, to, to end on a lighter note, the paper, Can I Go Home Now? The Safety and Efficacy of a New UK Paediatric Febrile Neutropenia Protocol for Restratified Early Discharge on Oral Antibiotics 
by Thomas Jackson in London and co-authors across the UK and Australia. The authors set out to evaluate a new protocol of risk stratification and early discharge for children with febrile neutropenia in 13 specialist centres. And I guess um, the backdrop to this is, as always happens, your newly diagnosed leukaemic child um, who's on maintenance treatment, low risk, comes in on a Friday evening, um, looks fairly well. Um, the manual to date has said uh, culture and start minimum of three days of broad spectrum antibiotics and likely five and so on. In other words, uh, a, a sentence to hospitalisation um, until likely the following Wednesday. And this group have been working for some time on uh, not just simplifying, but personalising these, these protocols um, and seeing if the standard practice, um, which has been in place for decades now, um, and, and that degree of um, treatment is really necessary for a well child uh, with the attendant low probability of bacteremia. It's always good to evaluate uh, new protocols. Um, it's good to have new protocols and then evaluate them and have they the intended effect. Um, and so in the spirit of freedom, um, I was I was glad to see that if you can identify appropriately uh, the group of low risk, you can safely send them home. Yeah, ab- absolutely. There are many children who don't need to be in hospital if they could be free to be at home. And I think uh, we all know what they would choose to do. Well, that was great. There's, of course, lots of other interesting papers in this issue, but th- this was a theme that really grabbed us this month. So thank you so much for listening. Um, needless to say, there's a lot more in this issue, which you'll find on the site, adc.bmj.com. Um, you can get the podcasts, not just ours, but Archimedes, Spotlights and FNN on any of the usual media, including Spotify and Apple. We hope you enjoy this issue as much as we have and that you'll be listening again next month. So it's, it's bye from me. And bye from me. Thanks for listening.